welcome to this, the 10th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And of course, this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. And each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we'll never ever charge for this podcast, but what we are looking for you to do is to put your money into Irish theatre. That's the whole ethos behind this podcast, to support, promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And how best can you support? Go and buy yourself some tickets, whether that's a theatre near you, whether it's a trip up to a big city like Galway or Dublin or Limerick or Belfast or Cork or whatever, but get out there and support Irish theatre. Help keep this machine ticking over. Um, And if maybe tickets are slightly out of your reach this week or this month, you can head on over to one of the crowdsourcing websites, the likes of a fundit.ie and Indiegogo, whatever one it may be. See if there's a theatre project there looking for support and maybe pass on a few dollars. Donations often start from as low as a fiver and there are always great rewards there. But of course, there are many ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast. We're trying to get the word out about Irish theatre. If you get the word out about us, that helps us do our job. So go and tell them about the podcast, either in person, over a cup of coffee or a pint, or even by sharing the link to the podcast as a Facebook post or retweeting the link on Twitter when we put it out. You can, of course, subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes, which does a huge amount to help us in their chart system over there. Um, But if you're not into iTunes or you don't use Apple or whatever, uh, these podcasts are all streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie. Do go back and listen to all our other episodes, both the 52 episodes from season one, and as I say, we're now up to number 10 in this second series, so there's quite a few there to go and enjoy. Um, Do leave us a review on iTunes if you are a user over there. It's a huge help to us, or indeed you can simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system. It's a one-click deal. It takes one second. Um, And as ever, you can follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Ireland. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And it's been another busy week here at Rise Towers. The new year has swung in fully. We're all in full effect and lashing away with plans for the rest of this year. It's a funny time of the year for theatre companies. It's not the glamorous end of stuff that you get around kind of festival time, September, October, when all the flashy, shiny things are happening. It's more the kind of ploddy, planning, administrative stuff that goes on. All necessary, all worthwhile, but a little bit less glamorous. So we're up to our eyes in uh, in doing a bit of the admin stuff for what we know is definitely coming up and also doing a little little bit of uh, brainstorming, I guess, for what the next steps for Rise will be. Lots of very exciting things on the horizon, which we will, of course, share with you in due course. But look, that brings us to our guest this week, and our guest is none other than the wonderful Jonathan White, who, for my money, apart from being a brilliant actor is quite simply a brilliant person. He's such a force for good within the business and he carries himself with such a positive energy that he makes any room he enters a happier place to be. And he's a guy who's done it all and who's done it all for nearly four decades on stage, on screen and on radio and, as you'll hear later in the conversation, now also behind the scenes with the All Conquering Landmark productions. I mean, he's just... He's legitimately one of my favourite people in the business. So let's get straight to the chat. Here it is. The brilliant Jonathan White. The wonderful Jonathan White on the podcast at last. Hello and welcome. 
thank you very much. So glad to have you here for so long. I'm thrilled. Um, Let us start, as we do each episode, and go back to the very beginning. Where does it all start for you? Well, you probably won't be surprised to hear that it starts in New York City in 1970. This is very exciting. Um, I was... I just turned 12 years old and uh, was coming, sadly, towards the end of an absolutely golden period of my life. Three and a half years spent living in New York at the end of the 60s. Um, And uh, we lived in an extraordinary building, uh, the Excelsior Hotel on the Upper West Side, which was what they call a residential hotel. So you could stay there for a night or you could stay there for the rest of your life. And as a result, that sort of mix led to an extraordinary mix of people. So, for instance, the top two floors was the Soviet cultural delegation to the United Nations, which, as we know from our spycraft, is the spies. So amazing. And they used to have these parties with accordions and men sort of uh, linking arms and doing <laughs> dancing close to the floor, which, which was really noisy. But as well, it had somehow along the way become... Uh, go-to place for Irish actors to stay when they were playing in New York. So, for instance, when uh, Donald Donnelly and Eamon Morrissey, among others, were in Philadelphia, Here I Come, that's where they stayed. And so Eamon came back there then when he did Lovers and Donald came back for various projects. And in 1970, um, fresh from its triumph opening the new Abbey Theatre, Borstal Boy came to Broadway and Neil Tobin and his family came to live in the Excelsior Hotel. And I started palling around with his son, Sean, and as a result was allowed to go backstage and even on one occasion on stage on Broadway. Um, Not during the show, obviously, between a matinee and a night show. But Um, still. But still. And to get that first look at a theatre that size and say, this is nice. Amazing. I like this. (laughs) And and near as I can pin it, that's that's that was the first moment. A proper light bulb moment. Yes. What had brought you guys to New York in the first place? Because um, you had been born here. I had been born here. Uh, my dad had a, a peripathetic career, and at that time was working for Board Fulcher, uh, in their uh, having having been a journalist and indeed a theatre critic at one point, but we'll gloss over. Sure um, he had uh, he had he had taken the, the semi stage shilling yeah. and uh, was in the marketing and public relations department of Board Fulcher and in nineteen sixty six was offered the opportunity to head up that end of things in Board Fulcher for North America. And so quite a gig. Uh, quite a gig uh, for a man two years in the organization and um, so he came home to us, I presume he discussed it with my mother first, but then came home to myself and my sister and said, would you be interested in moving to New York? And we had seen quite recently on telly The Tender Trap starring Frank Sinatra and we're thinking, you know, sort of split level duplex apartment. And we said, yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. So that's what took us for three and a half glorious years to New York, the New York of Greenwich Village and Vietnam War protests and moon landings and 
Woodstock and all of this going on. Now, at the risk of sounding like a bad Hallmark movie, was it like moving from black and white to colour in terms of from Ireland to there? And not only that, but sadly we moved back to black and white again <laughs> in the 70s and it kind of ruined my teenage years back in Dublin. Um, I gotta put up with this! <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I, I look on my teenage years at the unpleasant filling in a gorgeous sandwich wow. of uh, New York and Trinity College. Unbelievable stuff. That's spectacular. Um, I am not going to allow an opportunity to pass uh, on this podcast where I feel I have free reign to pontificate about niche, obscure American sports. Um, you have an interest in niche, obscure American sports. I say niche and obscure. Not in America, they're not. The national pastime well, you're referring you to. Yes. Um, how much do you love baseball? Uh, about as much as I love anything. Um, uh, uh, I have a t-shirt presented to me uh, by my family which says this guy only cares about baseball and like about three other people uh, so the, that's, that's, that's truer than, than you think I, 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 I'm, I adore baseball I adore its lore, its history I adore baseball cards which I collected from, from those early days um, I just get a, an awful lot of pleasure out of it and thankfully with the internet with uh, cheaper airfares I get to indulge myself far more now than I did in the self-same 70s when I was trying to tune in American Forces That's radio network uh, yeah exactly <laughs> and uh, on cat's whisk- whiskers practically so yes I was I was very fortunate uh, and, and this Came, came around a, a lovely circle for me this year when I met the son of the man who took me to my first baseball game on the 20th of September 1968. Um, when we were touring to Helena Handbag, uh, this man came up to me uh, after the show and said, you won't remember who I am. I had been primed, so I knew exactly who he was. <laughs> and I'm delighted to say, that was Kevin Seagrave, and I'm delighted to say that his dad, Barry Seagrave, is still with us uh, and... Uh, I, I owe him a huge debt of gratitude uh, for taking me to that first game. That is phenomenal. Um, is So I would, when I talk about my niche sports, I talk about the theatricality of pro wrestling. Is there any kind of sense of ceremony and theatricality to the game of an baseball? Awful, uh, an awful lot of ceremony. Yeah. Not so much theatricality, but um, the, uh, the Yankees, uh, my team is the New York Yankees, had for... Oh, over 50 years, the same public address announcer ah, who was brilliant. known as the voice of God, Mr. Bob Shepard, and uh, in sonorous tones would announce each player as he came to bat and would take um, great care to find out the correct pronunciation of Latin American and later Oriental names. Wow. And um, it was, I mean, old Yankee Stadium, where I went to first, was referred to as the Cathedral of Baseball, and this was its high priest. Come and, on. Uh, yeah, no. So there's a, it also, it does its own history terribly well. Mm-hmm. So it has, it has a Hall of Fame, uh, which dates from the 1930s, and there's a complicated election process. The, this year's results will be announced in about a week, <laughs> and it is like being elected to the College of Cardinals wow. uh, if, you're, if you are elected to its Hall of Fame, and you are enshrined in a town in upstate New York whose main and only purpose, apart from an opera festival, is the Baseball Hall of Fame, which just has bronze plaques of, of its greats. That is so cool. Um, so you come back to somewhat Dublin Dreary, Dreary Island in the 70s, mm-hmm. having had that magical spark on yep. stage in Broadway. Again, not a bad place to get mm-hmm. your start. Mm-hmm. Well, you're a start for your love of the business. Mm-hmm. 
when did you start to take steps to edge towards the well, business? I think I have to credit my mother here because I clearly a love of theatre had developed and I would go to shows with my parents and that sort of thing. But I was also very fortunate in that in my class in school was one Ronan Smith. Ah, and okay. um, we shared an interest in theatre and conversed about it quite a lot. And uh, my mother said to me one day, well, would you be interested in going to the Brendan Smith Academy? Now, I think she was just trying to get me out of the house because in, in my post-New York days, I was kind of a bit solitary and a bit of a, bit of a homebody. So uh, I certainly wasn't interested in playing sport of any kind. So uh, I said, the, the thought had literally never occurred to me. But uh, I said, yeah, so this was like two hours on a Saturday afternoon. Um, I discovered afterwards that, uh, or very quickly afterwards, that you also got to meet girls this way, which was, which was a huge help because I wasn't meeting them any other way. Uh, I know uh, subsequently that, for instance, um, the great Connor Evans and his wife Claire Mullen met on the sta- same st- self-same stairs, having been put out for talking. Um, so I started attending the, the Brendan Smith Academy, and uh, my first teacher there was the lovely Barbara Kelly, uh, wife of Frank, who I'm delighted to say, I see Barbara uh, occasionally at opening nights, and I'm uh, able to say thank you in person for, for, for that, those first steps. I was under the impression that the Brendan Smith Academy was exclusively for grown-ups, in the way that the Lear or the Gaiety mm-hmm. or, you know, Tentative mm-hmm. Minds, like kind of for proper grown-ups. I didn't realise they had, nope. you could kind of junior, get into Junior too. classes really? as well, and uh, uh, in, in my class in the Brendan Smith Academy was my first, but not last, encounter with Moya Doherty. Uh, so Moya was... And whatever happened to her. Well, well, she'll come back into this story a number of times. Um, but, uh, yeah, so so it was... It was as, as many of our children do now, it was weekend drama classes yeah. uh, with an uh, end-of-year show. And uh, uh, it, they also acted, as, as many, many such schools do, as a, um, an agency for their students. So as a result, I got my first paying job in uh, autumn 1974, uh, a half-hour uh, TV drama on RTE, um, playing, playing a, a, an assistant pug um, <laughs> who was beating up the very nice boy, Jerry O'Brien. Um, I love uh, it. And, and we were, I suddenly found myself, you know, sort of in, in, in a rehearsal room with a lot of the eminences of, of, of Irish acting at the time. Well, as a man who also made his break into the business at like 15, 16, mm. and surrounded yep. by great people, what was it like for you at that stage to be going and kind of doing it for real? Well, you see, I had no... I had none of the things that I now counsel actors to have. I didn't have the ability to shut up and listen. I was very free with my opinions and that sort of thing. And I remember I, there were two of us together playing, playing the bad guys in it. I remember at the, the rap party, our director, Deirdre Freel, um, uh, talking to the other guy very earnestly, encouraging him to continue with acting. And I was sort of saying, you know, what am I, chopped liver? And more or less said as much. And she turned to me and said, oh, don't mind about you. You'll be in this business in 40 years' time. <laughs> Which was just about 40 years ago. Spectacular. <laughs> I love it. Um, so you start getting your first taste of it like that. Mm-hmm. 
and okay a half hour TV thing as a teenager is great and mm-hmm. glamorous and romantic mm-hmm. but when the time comes to then go right I need to go and do this for real or mm-hmm. go and get, make a living somehow mm-hmm. what was the next step? Well when I finished in school um, there was no professional training for actors in this country at the time the Abbey School had shut down and nothing had come along to replace it I mean uh, the Gaiety School was nearly 10 years away before yeah. it was it was even thought of uh, and I had no inkling of going abroad, but also I came from a family where uh, a university degree was um, was a deal breaker. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and my father used the phrase unironically, something to fall back on. Yes. So I also wasn't going to go around the country for the for the fun of it. Uh, so my choice was between TCD and UCD, and I made my choice completely on their two drama societies um, because in those days they were the fringe and they were reviewed by the national press all their productions so um, in the immediate years before my entrance TCD was kind of stronger in that it had just produced the likes of Ingrid Craigie and Malcolm Douglas uh, whereas uh, UCD had gone through a quieter patch so plumped plumped for town, only for UCD to have a renaissance and turn out a generation of directors. Um, uh, ben Barnes, Martin Drury, Michael Scott, Jerry Stembridge, all in <laughs> UCD at the same time. So, And do you think they were actively avoiding you at the time? <laughs> they couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> well, I, I am glad to say that I did direct a couple of shows uh, in my time in Players and Trinity, uh, which represented... Uh, the university with honour at the Irish Student Drama Association Festival Excellent. against such uh, Illuminati. Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, look, the advice from parents of having something to fall back on is something we hear a lot and in many respects sensible sound advice. But equally, the idea of going into the business and making a living at the business wouldn't have been a completely alien concept in your family because of the connection to the great T.P. McKenna. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us a bit about how incredibly awesome T.P. McKenna was. Well, Sadly for me, at the time that the uh, the grow for possibly following in his footsteps uh, came about, he had already emigrated to London and taking my beloved McKenna cousins with him in 1972. So I didn't see as much of him as uh, as I would like at that time. But certainly, I had grown up with this larger than life and louder than life character in my life and thought not only was this uh, a fine example of an acting man but I I, I do recall uh, in those early theatre going days uh, he did come back for a record-breaking production of Sleuth at the Olympia where himself and Donald Donnelly owned that theatre and the, the feeling of sitting in the box uh, where you get that side-on yes. view, so you can look at the stage, you can look at the audience, and to see the two of them just control that audience was another big um, arrow in my quiver. <laughs> <That's> spectacular. <laughs> 
Um, and would you would some of the TV stuff have been seen here as well? Presumably, that well, we, did, we, we didn't have the English telly. Ah, uh, okay. my, my, my father, as a bookish man, had a complicated relationship with television. We didn't have a television in our house until... Uh, 1966 he had been involved in an awful lot of the uh, commemoration programming scripting and that sort of thing so we um, acquired from a friend one of the first Sony portable televisions in the country with uh, a screen size not much bigger than a wallet and uh, you could literally and I think this was my father's idea put it in a drawer when your respectable friends came so there wasn't any suggestion so New York, of course, spoiled us. We had, we had, we had TVs on trolleys that you could, <laughs> you could wheel around to your dinner. Um, so we had a TV when when we came back, but I think it was it was well into the seventies by the time we had English channels. So an awful lot of the fantastic work that TP did on on shows like The Avengers and mm. that sort of thing. I, didn't get to see until much later. So take me back to players then, because things are going along nicely there, mm. college has taken over. Mm. Um, as you start to look towards the end of your college career and as you're looking out at the world of theatre, how did you feel about trying to make those forays back into the world of professional stuff, having had a few credits under your belt beforehand? Well, I was blessed. Um, I didn't Before I had time to think about it, it had already happened. Uh, at the end of my second year, there was a very flash uh, fringe company that hired players for the summer, uh, run by two Americans, a company called Stage One, and the two Americans, uh, Robert McNamara and Douglas Kennedy. Douglas, who later became a very successful novelist, having run The Peacock for some years. But I got cast in one of their productions, one of the three uh, evening productions, uh, a play called Comedians by Trevor Griffiths. Yes. Um, was, this was its Irish premiere. And uh, it did so well, it packed out every night that it transferred to the project for a week. Okay. Uh, so suddenly, this is you know now getting a taste for it, uh, and I'm only in my second, at the end of my second year of a four-year degree. Um, when we uh, went to the project, one member of the cast was committed elsewhere. So Paul Bennett, who was a member of the project company at the time with the Sheridans, took over. And some months later, I was rehearsing the um, Scottish play with the same stage one company and uh, bumped into Paul Bennett and he said, "Uh, have you been in touch with Noel Pearson? And I said, no. And apparently, Borstal Boy, yes, it's that play again, was being revived for the first time since it had played at the Abbey in about 1970. And the problem with the old equity um, double standard chicken and, egg. chicken and egg at the time was that apparently there were no members of equity, no certainly no male members of equity under 25. And as you know, Borstal Boy needs about 16 young fellas in shorts. Yes. So um, I followed Paul's advice, um, rang Noel Pearson's office, uh, was called into the TV club in Harcourt Street on a Saturday morning. To discover I was at the callbacks uh, and nobody there on either side of the microphone had ever heard of me before, uh, but clearly they were desperate for young fellas. And I was addressed by Tomas McConaugh, the length of the uh, TV club ballroom, you, who are you? <laughs> I said, uh, uh, Mr. Pearson said I should come in. Right, okay, come up and read this. So I came up and read that and lo and behold was cast in the play that had first lit the fire I love it. eight years earlier and got to play in Borstal Boy 
in the gaiety with Neil Tobin, um, and still, you know, sort of with uh, with. It, 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 we'd moved on now. I was in my third year, but I was still in my third year in college. Yeah. I was in possession of an equity card already, um, which was gold dust. Which was gold dust. Four of us got our equity cards on that show, and that was unheard of. Yeah. The, the I mean, you had you had the vista of Gabriel Byrne in short trousers and him a well built twenty eight year old passing himself off as sixteen. That's how desperate they were for young fellas at that stage. Wow. So. Uh, but that that snowballed then because I had the equity card and yeah. literally I spent my final year in college dodging the history department of Trinity and appearing most notably in uh, the Gate Theatre's Golden Jubilee production which was a play called Where Stars Walk written by Michael McLeamore, me playing the part that Michael McLeamore had written for himself no pressure, eh? Uh, no weight, directed by and starring Hilton Edwards. So I have the privilege of having appeared with Hilton Edwards his last time on stage. Really? And I have to say, with the passing of Biddy White Lennon in November, I am now the last member of that cast wow. standing, which means I'm very old. <laughs> I was very young then. Yes, I'm very indeed, old now. Indeed. Um, that man, that's spectacular. I mm. love those through lines. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I've I've said it an awful lot of times before. I love those through lines of, of one generation passing on to oh. the next. And it's that kind of, there's like a cultural history and a yes. memory that passes down. And he shared a stage with her yeah. and she yeah. shared a stage with him and we trace it right the way back. And that was such a gate show and it had Paddy Bedford in it and it had the wonderful Pat Levy in it and it had Connor Evans, Christopher Casson, you know, some of the, of, of the people who had, who had kept... Uh, Edwards McLeamore productions yeah. going over the years. So well, when we played for four months to packed houses, and it was it was just it, it was an unreasonable treat to have at that point. I have somewhere in my possession a twenty first birthday card signed by the cast of that show because we were in tech uh, on my twenty first birthday. That's not a bad way <laughs> to go. It's not. It's all downhill so the, since then. So can, the start <laughs> is all kind of fantastic. Yeah. How quickly after that does the association with Rough Magic come and did that tie into the time of Trinity? It did uh, but it did on a social level more than anything else because um, the first of the Rough Magicians arrived in Trinity the autumn I left Yes, but because I was still around for romantic reasons <laughs> let's say um, uh, there was there was cross fertilization there and so I got to meet uh, a number of, of, of Rough Magic when they were uh, going through their college days and um, worked with them in fr fringe shows that were precursors of Rough Magic and was was a great, great supporter of theirs as they started off. I've, I've often referred to Rough Magic as my spiritual home um, oh, uh, uh, and I was very fortunate uh, within a couple of years of them being established to to get cast in in some of my favorite shows um serious money um Actually, the, i'm very familiar with the uh the irish premiere of our country's good by timberlake wartenbaker um uh the, the, their first their first voyage into new writing declan hughes's first play play i can't get started uh which we did at the edinburgh festival all all fantastic productions what was the energy around that gang like at the time? Because you hear mythical stories yes. about it. And I'm always intrigued 
who knows what at the time because it's hard to see the wood for the trees when you're there did you sense it did it feel special it did because they were blessed with a certainty that um few of us are at that stage now i mean it was all done on the clippings of tin and uh it was a mixture of you know particularly with declan and lynn just a vision and a conviction that they were right plus in siobhan burke the most organised person that the Irish theatre had at any level at that stage. Um, So, you know, it was... They they had that thing of getting more things right Mm. at an early stage than wrong. And their programming was really attractive, not only to a student audience, but to a, a sort of a young professional audience. So an awful lot of people discovered them and they were kind of like their personal trophy company. Yeah. And so th- there was a, a big following for Rough Magic uh, at, you know, almost from the get-go. Yeah, it seems to have been quite a special time. Yeah. Kind of like just grabbing onto mm. a zeitgeisty kind of thing. Um, I might talk a little bit about zeitgeisty stuff because two shows that seem like I shouldn't be able to talk about them in the same sentence but I will are No Escape at the Abbey and then Anglo the Musical at the Board Gosh two very different shows in terms of form Mm -hmm. but in terms of capturing a moment and responding to big seismic Mm -hmm. shifts in Mm -hmm. Irish society Mm -hmm. and there's you there at the heart of both of them yes Uh, at a time when my theatre career, uh, let's be charitable, had been quiet for about five years and uh, it was, uh, in the case of of No Escape, it was just uh, one of those things that that you teach, you try and teach actors to do. You see a piece uh, in the paper saying this is going to happen and you think that's a good fit. So you send off an email, in my case to Roshan McBrin, who was directing it and say, you know, I think uh, I might be able to help. You know, I think you're looking for people who can play um, loads of different characters uh, of a certain age, and that would have, that had been my stock and trade in theatre. I mean, for for the longest time, I I didn't do a show where I only played one person. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it was also important to me because uh, Mary Rafter and I had been at school together, right. uh, and um, it was wonderful to see. Uh, what she was doing in journalism and particularly in crusading journalism in the meantime as a chance to to uh, uh, re-engage and to, to renew acquaintance was, was wonderful. Uh, but um, because it was the, the whole issue of the, of the Ryan Report was so fresh in people's minds um, and then we had the, the, the major... Um, self-inflicted controversy of the fact that uh, people who had been in a lot of the institutions couldn't go and see the show because there was no lift in the peacock at the time and uh, to be fair to Fiuk, uh, he he moved mountains and we literally moved the show for one performance to Liberty Hall to uh, to uh, accommodate people uh, and now there is a lift in the peacock as a direct result of that but um, it was it was a very obviously a very moving but um, it felt like a very important show to do and we particularly on the opening night uh, a number of of survivors of the institutions came along and their their gratitude afterwards because there there was some think pieces in the press saying why are actors doing this why don't 
the victims get up on stage and tell us truth and reconciliation exactly, style exactly and they said to us I could never do that I could never get up these things you know I couldn't get to the end of a sentence never mind to the end of a speech yeah. so the fact that we were able to use our technical gifts to put it at its bluntest yeah. to serve that story to bear witness to that story was uh, was wonderful it, it was incredible to be in the audience hearing those words mm. because I guess it's the immediacy of it and kind of that it is you know so much of it's kind of first hand whatever else but um, because you think you know and you've heard the news reports and you've read the mm. papers and you've idea what went on but it's when, when it's when you're confronted with it so boldly and so mm. straightforward go, this is what went on yes it was it was staggering in its impact mm. I think mm. yeah um, really remarkable piece and then as we say in a very different way how insane was the run-up to opening night of Anglo the Musical? The most insane thing that has happened to me, ever. Uh, I, I, I've told the story before that at one point in the second day of the tech of Anglo the Musical, I suddenly had this waking dream where we were being told that uh, we had to start the preview, but we'd continue the tech in the scene dock while we were... <laughs> while we were doing the preview. It, 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 was, it was an unreasonable undertaking from so many points of view. It, at a time uh, when there was no um, tradition or backbone of large-scale home-produced musical theatre yeah. in Ireland, to do a show like that and then add puppets and then to be defying the DPP... Uh, so we had the situation on that morning, on the morning of our first preview, on the morning of the second day of our tech, of the producers saying, we have been told by the Director of Public Prosecutions that we have to cut three scenes and a big number at the end of the first act. They have also invited Sean Fitzpatrick's solicitors to injunct us. So we have to go ahead with the preview tonight, the one preview, we have to go ahead... One preview one for pre a musical one that scale? Yes, in the Borgosh Energy Theatre. Uh, we Christ. have to go ahead with the preview so that his lawyers can attend to see do they want to take out an injunction in the High Court tomorrow. The, I have never been prouder of being part of a company in my life. The way we said... right. I mean, you had two choices. Run, yeah. change your name, uh, or figure it out and in particular uh, Mark O'Regan who was playing that particular role or a role that could be equated to it um, based on an original story but, by yes um, uh, just took it on himself to, to, to manage the cuts mm. so that um, you know we knew where we were going and uh, you know we sort of figured out a dramatic blackout for the end of the first act where there should be a big musical number and we did it now um, what we achieved at that stage artistically I'm not sure, sure. Uh, it was the very fact that we got it on it was wonderful for most of us to return then to the Olympia um, a month later uh, in a venue possibly where it sat more comfortably and to really mine what the, the real value that was in the piece, the, the, the words that Paul Howard had written, the music that uh, Tony O'Sullivan had written, that, um, and when on the final night in the Olympia we had a full house and a standing ovation, you really felt that's 
what it deserves for the work that yes. went into it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, I'm sure there are um, casual theatre goers who probably left at the interval or certainly have tried to cleanse it from their minds. But it, I, is, I it, it is one of my proudest achievements. I do have recollections of elaborate puppet sex scenes at some point, I think. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I think what's crazy about that whole thing is the one thing that people talk about um, and the kind of push that you know theatre should be representing contemporary society and you know urgency it's, it's a big thing the Finton goes on a lot you know where's, where's the response to this where's the response to that I think what people forget is Plough in the Stars when it caused its riots was a decade after yeah. the rising yeah. theatre by its nature yeah. takes some time to distill some mm-hmm. down you guys didn't hang around. You were straight yeah. in in the midst of this all is, the this was This was 2012 like, uh, events that had happened in, in 2008. Yeah. So it was... Uh, well, I mean, the fact that not only had it not, was it was it still on the front pages, it hadn't gone through the courts yet, hence the problems with the DPP. I love that. The sheer ambition of it is just inspiring. Crazy though it may have been. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Wiser heads might have... <laughs> but anyway, we, we, we did it and, and we, we feel we got away with it. <laughs> um, we spoke earlier about the voice of God. You're a man whose voice is relatively well known to listeners, um, both from uh, a very active voiceover career, but also from a huge amount of work in radio. Mm. How do you enjoy working in that medium? I, I love it. Uh, I, spent, I spent a good... 20 years um, uh, doing an awful lot of it uh, and um, to quote the kinks I'm not the world's most physical guy so uh, <laughs> distilling the the actor's art down to what you can do with your voice um, is it's a great discipline but also um, it's a great freedom uh, you know to to paint those pictures with, uh, with the word. So uh, I also was lucky enough to, to get involved at a time when there was a repertory company of between 30 and 40 actors, um, you know, when they were producing five drama slots a week, uh, including two daily serials, um, you know, so uh, there was a lot of work out there and uh, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it does feel like a different time. It does. Almost, between, does. you think, yeah. you know, the old Abbey Company. Yeah, yeah. Right no, when I, when I started in the business, there were 70 actors with pensionable jobs. Uh, there are none now. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's what's happened in the past 40 years, yeah, young people. It's quite, it's, quite, it's quite something. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I think sometimes people presume that radio is easier. And it's not necessarily. It's, not, no. it's a different skill set mm. to a large extent. Mm. And you see people sometimes who haven't done a huge amount flapping their arms around in front yeah. of the microphone, doing all their acting. Mm. You're going, dude, I'm sure you're feeling it. Yeah. But unless it's coming yes. through that mic, yeah. it ain't going to happen for you. If you turn around, they'll hear you. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, have you any shining, standing, standout moments from radio stuff that really well, stands out? Uh, there's, there's one character that um, I never played on stage, but I have played on radio and on television, and that's Desmond Drum in A Life by Hugh Leonard, which I almost got to play opposite your grandfather on television, but sadly there was a a piece of short-sightedness on the part of RT management, uh, who thought that Ray McAnally wasn't enough of a name um, for a UK audience. Now, it was two or three years before uh, A Very British Coup, okay. which was his his calling card, but uh, I, I, it's one of my great regrets that um, somebody higher up in RTE, because Louis Lenton wanted Ray to play drum, 
somebody higher up in RTE said, uh, no, we need somebody with a television name in the UK because it was a co-production with Channel 4. Paul Rogers, lovely actor, uh, but um, not not a huge name. And uh, and sadly, um, I, I, I missed the opportunity to act with their grandfather, which would have been uh, a career high at the time. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Um, let's talk Landmark. Okay. Um, have, <laughs> I believe have, they're very good. Have they ever done anything much in the last... Was it nearly 15 years now? It was it? nearly 15 years now. Yes, um, it, 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 it will be 15 years in March. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, talk to me about the journey through it, in, mm. if you can condense the last 15 well, years of phenomenal success into well, the next five minutes. Any, anybody who uh, has heard the podcast from the previous series by my wife and Clark uh, will get a much better feel for that journey. Uh, I was at the start... Um, I was going to say I was an observer. I wasn't quite an observer, but um, I, I am very happy that at the time uh, I was uh, making a few shillings from the old voiceovers and that allowed her the financial space to leave the steady job uh, in the Gate Theatre and, and set up on her own. But um, as she said in, in, her, in her podcast, uh, when the company was set up, it was very much a management services company as opposed to a production company. Mm-hmm. So everything was her, yeah. uh, right down to the invoicing and everything and that sort of thing. But as the ball, as the snowball rolled down the hill, and uh, in 2004, the first production skylight was staged, and suddenly there were things like payroll. And as, as a man who knew my way around both a, a spreadsheet and the tax code, I was inveigled into increasingly uh, giving her a hand um, and uh, to the point now that my, my day job is as, as financial controller of, of Landmark with no training whatsoever. <laughs> uh, have, have software, will we'll travel. But it has been an extraordinary journey from, from that little acorn to one production a year for the first three yeah. or four years to I think the slate for this year is eight, nine different iterations of huge big shows in three countries. Um, it's, uh, it's extraordinary what she has done. It's quite, yeah, it is quite something. And as you say, like the idea of that kind of scale of six, seven, eight shows, mm. you know, between here in New York and further afield, mm. whatever else, like certain national theatres here or certain theatres at the other end of O'Connell Street mm. might be proud of that kind of output. Well, that, <laughs> you couldn't I couldn't possibly comment. comment. <laughs> um, Certainly with their funding. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's a remarkable thing. Mm. Um, have, have there been standout moments for you then from the landmark years? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, I mean, um, particularly... I, 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 it's been it's been incremental. I mean, the the early project shows, you know, with done in the face of such adversity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, but delivered with just such artistic integrity and you know um, and critical and commercial success. Then moving to the big theatres. I mean, uh, both the first nights of. 
of Dandelions by Fiona Looney and uh, Last Days of the Celtic Tiger, you know, wanting to pinch myself, you know, at the notion that here was our little company, you know, on the stage of the Olympia Theatre. And then, and then, you know, taking the show on the road, you know, sort of uh, Galway, um, uh, Mr. Mann, um, and then later to St. Anne's Warehouse in, in Brooklyn. Uh, and then possibly culminating with the first night of Arlington, uh, yeah. opening the uh, current artistic directorship uh, of the Abbey Theatre, which uh, holds almost as big a place in my heart as it does in yours. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I thought you were going to say almost as big a place in your heart as Yankee Stadium. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's good too. Um, yeah, no, so all those, all those moments... Um, you know, and all those moments which, which often begin with a conversation at our dinner table and, um, you know, and, and maybe a year, maybe two years later, in one particular case, uh, three years later, um, they, they finally um, find their way to the stage that suits them best. That's enormously gratifying, but it's also enormously admirable. And I can, I can stand outside and say, you know, this is an enormous achievement. Yeah, it's fantastic. And as you say, I mean, even from those early days in Project, the artistic calibre of the mm. work has mm. always been mm. second to none. Mm. Like the shows, are, the shows are always a joy to mm. go and experience. Mm. Mm. And um, that's why uh, I get a little cross at the, um, the, the tarring of certain productions with the word commercial, oh, yeah, as if, as if uh, playing in a bigger theatre with the hope of possibly paying your own salary uh, out of uh, a, a return is is dirty business, you know that you must you must starve for your art. Yeah. And, 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 and no, thank you. I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy paying my bills, yeah, exactly. putting my kids to exactly. college, and putting food and, on the and, and people in the early days were mystified by the business model, but uh, necessity breeds. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, Talk to me about plans for you for the future, because your man was a huge amount of experience under your belt, but a significant amount ahead of you as well. Well, I'd love to think. Um, I mean, there have been exciting times recently mm-hmm. with stuff like Show a Bag. Mm. Um, how was your experience with Show a Bag? I am thrilled that I did it. Yeah. Uh, I am thrilled that we did it. Um, it... it uh, about this time, five years ago, I was desperately, seriously involved in trying to write a very serious play. Right. Uh, I had made two two big mistakes. It was a, a piece that, uh, not necessitated, but certainly invited a lot of research, which as a former history student is the downfall for me, because I will, I will research till the cows come home and then find out where they were. Yeah. Um, uh, but also, um, it was a very serious piece. And I don't think that's necessarily the best choice either for me or in the Irish theatre. Because as I was struggling with this, I was watching Shona bags like Swing, like Small Plastic Wars, like uh, Fight Night, uh, and thinking, oh God, this is so much better than what I'm thinking about. And it's, in most cases, so much funnier too. And so that uh, ran into the, the sand in the end. Uh, so uh, the fact that a chance conversation with my good friend Helen Norton led to a um, 
a roller coaster process where in the space of literally two months we went from the first germ of an idea to being approved as one of the, that year's Shona bags and Amazing. having again a two month target ahead of us to produce a first draft it is amazing how it concentrates the mind people talk about an elevator pitch mm. uh, and having a pitch for a show and trying to explain it and whatever else I, like, I think the pitch for your show was down to like maybe half a sentence at one point and yeah. instantly anyone mm. went oh absolutely yes mm. sign me mm. up like I will program that anywhere I want to buy a ticket immediately mm. my, uh, my favourite tribute to our show was when I asked uh, Sarah Cregan to produce it she immediately went off to the internet to check that somebody hadn't done it already um, <laughs> so uh, yes I mean for those who don't know it's, uh, its subtitle is The Secret Life of Miss Prism and Canon Chasuble and basically it bears the same relationship to the importance of being earnest as Rosencrantz and Kildenstern are dead does to Hamlet so it was it was a bit of a technical exercise but, but a, a, a bit of a, a thrill as well to identify where the two of them were when they weren't on stage in Wilde's play and then to uh, to sketch in what might so be what might be going on but what is the thing, as soon as you heard the premise and you heard that you two were doing it you go yeah absolutely I'm sold <laughs> I just instantly I'm sold um, and you travelled all around the world well uh, some bits of the world <laughs> Monaghan uh, no no we, 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 we had a great four months with it last year where we played in, in Bewley's for five weeks then we went to the Edinburgh Festival for all of the month of August and I'm delighted to say sold out for the entire run uh, my wife the producer was sitting beside me saying you know this doesn't normally happen <laughs> uh, because she's she's had her struggles in Edinburgh in the past um, but uh, yeah no we had a great time there and uh, then we did uh, um, five six week Irish tour in September October uh, which which succeeded beyond our wildest expectations I, I'm a man who comes from the days when touring was done on trains for a week at a time so this this show band model yes. of you drive the van and you're in um, Cork one night and you're in Dunleary the next night and you're in Castlebar the next night uh, was new to me, but yes. um, but we made it through. Fantastic. Um, talk to me about the future you, I, in terms of stuff that's coming up, in terms mm. of ambitions for what's coming up. Uh, what's on the agenda? Well, um, at the end of this month, uh, I'm doing... Um, the third of Colin Murphy's documentary pieces for Fishamble, uh, I have I did the I, I did the television version of Bailed Out, which will be shown uh, on TV Three, I think, in February. Uh, but this is my first time working with them on stage, and this is Hockey Gregory, and is about the Hockey Gregory deal of 1982, and allows me to revisit one of my favourite characters from my past, uh, Dr. Gareth Fitzgerald, uh, a, a little-known radio uh, comedy show from the early 1990s was the Monica Moody show, where Pauline McLean played the uh, eponymous Glenagiri housewife. This was before things like the Mrs. Merton show or the Kumars. It was the first of apparently ordinary people given their own chat show. And... Uh, in the madness of the late great Jerry McNamara and Fiona Looney, they gave um, Monica a sidekick, Dr. Garrett Fitzgerald, showbiz correspondent. Um, but in fact, Garrett was Monica's conscience and uh, trying to reel her back in. Um, we, 
uh, Liam Fay in the Irish press said a very nice thing. He, he said, my version of Gareth Fitzgerald is what we know is really at the heart of the man. Just a big child obsessed with statistics and chalk ices. Uh, so uh, the, the, in, in Hawhey Gregory, I will be doing a straighter version of Gareth than that. But still, um, the enthusiasm of the man um, will hopefully shine through. I love it. It makes me so happy. Uh, on a point of principle, I'm not getting out of here without mentioning Father Ted because my friends will kill me. <laughs> Um, like that's an iconic moment. It's it is. an iconic series. It is. It is. Like, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna deny it. Uh, you, you, you. Every now and then, over forty years, you get one small, perfectly formed golden ring on the merry-go-round, and that was a case of going into an audition for a much smaller part. Um, uh, I have eternally indebted to Greg Kyle who was working for Hubbards at the time who knew that this was a character that they had had trouble casting so threw it to me on the way in and um, here you fix here, this here you fix this because because I think people were doing too much with it they were acting the gum with it whereas the important thing with Father Flynn the uh, priest who wasn't paying attention at the start is that he wasn't paying attention at the start um, so it's absolutely straight until Ted explains to him why he should need a parachute and shouldn't have drawn a picture of himself in the nip with a dog. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You've played King Lear this is what we're talking about. But it is the part that keeps on giving. Not only, not only is it a piece of acting that my children aren't ashamed of, but as we went through primary school in particular, and as it, it was shown once a year as opposed to sort of 24-7 the way it is now, uh, my, my children's teachers would look at me with a new respect, wariness, uh, the following Monday morning after it, after it had been repeated. So, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm so thrilled that it happened to me. <laughs> I love it. It's fantastic. Jonathan, you are one of my favourite people in the business. I am so honoured and privileged to have had you on. This has been a glorious chat. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for letting me out. So, there you have it. The great Jonathan White. Such a pleasure to finally have him on the podcast. He's been a big fan of the podcast for an awful long time, and he's someone that I've been dying to have on for the longest time it's been so great to finally have him here and again as I always say just so great to hang out with the guy Uh, an absolute privilege and a pleasure great to hear those stories and I just you know a guy who has done so much going back through such a long period of time I love that he kind of bridges some of the older stuff into right into the new stuff and of course I wasn't letting him out of there without talking Father Ted just makes me happy in my life so look that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of theatrical goings on around the country let's start at our national theatre the Abbey still has let the right one in playing at the moment at the gate there is the red shoes rapunzel is still playing at the gaiety i shall be going to check it out this week coming and um, the board gosh energy theater has beautiful the new theater has save and quit and the viking in clontarf has typhoid mary which i'm hearing good things about uh, at bewley's the all conquering all honey is there well worth checking out if you get a chance and of course at smock alley at the moment the first fortnight uh, festival continues so there's a whole heap of great shows there do go onto their website to check out all all the details for those. Um, stay in Temple Bar at the Project Arts Centre. If we got some more cocaine, I could show you how I love you. That's not a statement from me. That's the title of the play. Uh, of course, that's starring the brilliant Alan Mann, who I have a huge amount of time for. Dying to go and see that now in the next couple of days. And then as we head further afield, the Everyman in Cork has the last few performances of Beauty and the Beast. And equally, Beauty and the Beast at Galway's Town Hall Theatre is just about to finish too. <coughs> Just
just about to finish two at the Bell Table in Limerick. If you're listening today, Friday, there's In Two Minds. And that's basically us. That is episode 10 in the books. We will, of course, be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime, this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. <laughs>